0: Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lee Lyons,
1: and I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. Today, we're talking about a subject that is and always will be relevant in a nation that was founded on immigration. This episode is called Latinx, an invitation to reconceptualize Latin American immigration and to see the possibility of cultural and linguistic diversity.
0: If you haven't listened to the episode, please stop now, go back and listen. We'll be referencing a lot from the episode for sure, so it'll be helpful to have a sense of context.
1: Yes, Darylis, this episode was a really unique one, and I love all the information that was presented and the beautiful blending of language and insights. You already know this, but my favorite thing ever is that term, generous listener. I've been saying that ever since I first listened to your interview with Salafa and thinking about it and working on embodying that for myself.
0: Yeah, I thought it was such a beautiful thing Sulafa said too, and really fitting actually in this context, ironically, right? Because we're doing a podcast. So I think just by virtue of listening to this, the people tuning in are generous listeners because they're devoting time and attention to learning and growing. So I just love that we get to be part of this.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of growing, this episode really expanded my perspective and it left me with a lot more I want to know and talk about. So let's get started. I interviewed my friend Veronica Fitzgerald for this episode. And just to let everyone know, she's amazing. She's a mom of three, a fantastic yoga teacher, and she makes the best empanadas known to man. And I mentioned the empanadas because there's kind of a Pavlovian response associated with them. (laughs) Every time I think of Veronica's empanadas, I start to drool, my mouth waters, and it's the same for my children.
0: (laughs) Those sound delicious.
1: She's amazing. But anyway, the reason I interviewed Veronica for this episode is because she is from Ecuador. Her parents emigrated to the United States when she and her brother were teenagers to give them better educational opportunities. And although they were able to enter the US with visas and became naturalized in a very simple way, Veronica shared that she experienced major post traumatic stress over the past few years as children were being separated from their families at the border. Veronica also shared that she knows how hard it is to leave a country that you love so much and, you know, leaving behind family for better opportunities under the best of circumstances. So her heart just broke wide open when she saw these kids being torn apart from their parents when they were already, you know, undergoing a very traumatic move. So she personally got involved to help out with that situation And now as we're hearing that over 500 children are still displaced because their parents can't be found, it's just so heartbreaking. And I'm wondering, Darylise, do you think people who are leaving their home countries and all that they know behind know what they will be facing when they get to the border and they're willing to do so because their situations are just so dire back at home? Or do you think that they don't know what they're going to be facing until they get there?
0: Yeah, you know, I think those are great questions. And it's really hard to speculate because I think it's very individualized and everyone's family circumstances are really different. And I think someone's why for leaving their home is going to be different than another family's why. But what we know for sure is that there is this mythology of America as the land of freedom and opportunity, I think that, you know, that a lot of people seem to feel or believe. And in my interview with Dulce Ramirez, Dulce told me that her family did know that it would be really dangerous, but at home they were facing poverty and a lack of educational opportunities, and her dad was already in the United States. And so it was just, for their family at least, it was a choice between the known pain that they were going through and the unknown of what could be, both good and bad. And I think it's really important that, as you mentioned, nearly two-thirds of the, so when last I read it was 490. 97 minors who are still in custody, including 22 children younger than age five. Have parents who were deported, most of them in the first weeks of Trump's zero tolerance policy, and now the parents can't be located, right? And I don't think that anyone had a way of knowing that that would be the case because prior to the zero tolerance policy, if families tried to come, what happened to them was what happened to Dulce's family, right? Like they were temporarily incarcerated and then sent home or sent back to their countries of origins. And so I think that when the zero tolerance policy went into effect, a lot of families that were trying to cross the border really had no way of knowing. And even if they did, like even if you do sort of know something in a general way, it doesn't mean you really understand. And I don't think anyone knew how prolonged these family separations would be or how confused the administration would be and how confusing and how what a struggle it would be. And so it's really it's devastating and it's senseless and These families didn't have to be separated. And prior to Trump entering office, these situations weren't as tragic as they became after the introduction of the zero tolerance policy. And I think it's especially sad that when you take into account, as we reported in the episode, immigration is a good thing, right? It's actually beneficial. It's beneficial often to the person who's leaving whatever is known and painful and hard, right? And it's beneficial also to the United States to have an influx of new ideas and creative thinkers and people who are stimulating the economy and just hardworking and highly motivated, right? And so it's devastating when you think about the fact that keeping these families out and separating these families hurt them and also hurts America.
1: Yeah, I I really pray that those children won't be without their parents forever. It's just terrible.
0: I know. And I think it's so hard because it just goes to show how the policies of an administration actually do have very real impacts on people's lives. And we see that more and more. And I think it can be very easy to kind of Distance oneself from what's happening in the world or what's happening in the political sphere, but it actually really matters.
1: Absolutely. And that's a really good transition into what I want to share next because we get a lot of our data from social scientists and I'm always fascinated by their perspectives. And the information that John McDonald shared with us was illuminating. So just to reiterate his credentials, John is one of the leading criminologists in the United States and has served on Immigration and Criminology Advisory Committees for several presidents, including our current administration. And one of his most important data-driven studies shows that immigrants do not bring crime into the country and can actually help to revitalize economic downturns in small rural towns.
0: Yeah. John and I spoke a lot about that. And I think his interview really shatters the popular delusion and propaganda about immigration. So there are a lot of really important studies and papers that spell out the points that John made in his interview. And I found one article in the Journal of Crime and Justice that I found to be very comprehensive and persuasive. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. But effectively, I think it's just important for people to know that The research, and it's overwhelming amounts of research, as John pointed out, like it doesn't matter someone's political leanings, it doesn't matter someone's sort of moral beliefs, like just the data, the research itself shows that immigration does the exact opposite of what opponents to immigration suggest. So immigration reduces crime, it stimulates the economy, it revitalizes areas in which the population is declining. So it's just overwhelmingly to be proven that it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, right. And newness promotes growth, prosperity, and community.
0: Absolutely.
1: In fact, Aralise, Obed said in the interview that it is through community that people find liberation from oppression. It's very much what I think is happening through programs like HIP and Hazleton, PA, which is just HIP, as well as Nalaya, which is National, and Sakate, which is in Philadelphia, can you talk about these programs also and how they help to reverse negative stereotypes about Latinx communities and how this ultimately helps with assimilation into and acceptance by communities that are already established?
0: Well, I think it's really important, Anna Marie, to look at how we're evaluating our metrics when it comes to organizations. And so what I mean by that is that is an organization's concern to support and uplift community members like within the community? or outside of the community, or both. And then that brings larger questions about what constitutes community, and where do we draw those lines, etc. So in terms of your question being like, how does it ultimately help with assimilation into an acceptance by already established communities, I can't really speak to the organizations that you mentioned in a general way way because I think each has their own unique culture and texture and and perspective. But for example, NALEO, which is a national organization, is concerned with Latinx participation in the American political process and with supporting individuals in naturalization and citizenship. So a huge part of their work is to really bring members of the Latinx community into full political participation. And so that is very much concerned with I wouldn't necessarily say assimilation or acceptance, but like empowering individuals to participate within the established system, right? Like so within the American democratic political process. And that doesn't mean that the work that they do doesn't impact the system and won't change it from within, but it's really like their work is bringing Latinx individuals into a participatory democracy. So it sort of is like, as you were alluding to, it is sort of like working within a specific community to engage with a larger community that is already established. So an organization like Sacate, on the other hand, which was founded by Obed Arango that organization begins from the premise that every community has everything it needs within itself. So they're not necessarily operating from a premise of participation within other communities, but Sakate's concern is more geared towards creating an empowered and liberated community that has within itself everything it needs. And yes, Absolutely, like Sakate has been able to influence other communities and to influence American society, and they've done quite a lot of that actually. I could go on and on about the wonderful things that both organizations have done, but we'll put links to Naleo and Sakate's website and also to the HIP website, that you, um, organization's website, because that way I think people can see some real examples of positive impacts that these organizations have had. But it's really important to look at the fact that every organization is so different and every organization is going to have its own culture and its own initiatives and own concerns. And then just based on the fact that Naleo is national and Sakate is local, there's just a lot of differences. And the reason I'm not really speaking so much to specifically the organization HIP and Hazleton is that Like, I don't know as much about the organization, but I think the work that they do is really important and is really great. So we will include... And I did
1: read a little bit about HIP and Hazleton, and I think it's pretty interesting because they really are working on assimilation, just having that newer community integrated and accepted into the community more. And I think that's what the premise of HIP is. So, yeah, definitely add that to the show notes and people can read about it because it's it's almost like a modern experiment of assimilation.
0: Yeah, I think that is like really interesting. And it does speak to like these pedagogical issues of whether or not, like, what is the goal, right? Like, is the goal assimilation? Is the goal? And I think in John McDonald's interview, it was interesting, because he was talking about when assimilation, you can sometimes like lose some of the benefits of the existing culture and society. And so like, I think it's really interesting to think about organizations that are working to liberate communities like as communities and independent organizations, but then also like organizations that are sort of looking to uplift society as a collective. And I mean, I just think it's very unique and individual. And I think there's definitely a space for the kind of work that all three organizations are doing. But as for acceptance by and from other people, like I don't know that effective advocacy Tends to be as concerned with that as it is more concerned with uplifting society and creating community and connection and liberation.
1: Yeah. So, Darylise, as you know, Salafa is the one who coined my all time favorite phrase, generous listener. What does it mean to you to be a generous listener?
0: Yeah, I know. You, like, every time, like, I feel (laughs) like anytime we're just, like, having a conversation, you'll drop that. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, (laughs) generously. I know. But I love that phrase, too. And I think to me it means, and I know we alluded to this a little earlier, but it means what podcast listeners are doing now, right? So just slowing down long enough to really listen and hear another person or multiple people, um, their experiences, their stories without an agenda other than just listening and loving people enough to care about what they have to say and to take them seriously and be with the truth of their experience. So that's what I take it to mean. But Anna Marie, what does it mean to you?
1: Well, I don't think that I can define it better than you just did. So I'm going to repeat it. So to me, being a generous listener is slowing down enough to really listen and to hear other people's perspectives and experiences without you know, having an agenda of being heard myself. And it means loving people enough to care about what they have to say, taking them seriously, and simply being with their truth, even if it doesn't match my own. So becoming a generous listener is something that I've committed attuning myself to since we started this podcast. And I'm really, really grateful to all of our generous Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners.
0: Yeah, me too. I know we couldn't do this work if it weren't for the people listening. It's so special.
1: So So now I'm curious about listener takeaways and questions as well. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com.
0: You know, Anna Marie, something I want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. So, as you'll know if you've heard uh, the Q and A portions of this podcast before, Vita Supreme is my absolute favorite supplement company, and it's because they really care about people. This is an unprecedented time in our history, so we're in the middle of a global health crisis. People are stressed. Our immunity is low, and I think a lot of us are just struggling. We're struggling mentally, physically, and emotionally. And Vita Supreme is offering demystifying diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. The company believes that health radiates from the inside out, and their supplements are great. They've put together a special demystifying diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at Vitasupreme.com/slash pages slash diversity. Or you can peruse their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com pages diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 20% off.
1: Well, just this morning, Darylise, I got notification that my joint support from Vita Supreme is on its way. So I'm really eager to try it. And just to let people listening know, I saved $8 by using the code diversity.
0: That's awesome. I can't wait to hear how that one is because I haven't tried that yet. So if you're listening, go to VitaSupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off.
1: Well, all right, let's move on to listener questions. We'll start with an email question from Nellie from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Nellie writes, Hi, Darylise, You said in your episode that the immigration of Latin Americans has a positive effect on the United States economy in general, and especially with Social Security and Medicare. Can you explain more fully so I can understand what you mean?
0: Absolutely, Nellie. Yeah, I think that can be confusing. And I know I personally had to read a bit more to really wrap my head around how and why undocumented immigration could really stimulate U.S. economy, especially with Social Security and Medicare. So what happens is that undocumented immigrants come to the United States and because they don't have papers when they get jobs, They'll have to present, or their employer will have to present often a social security number in order to pay wages. And so then employers deduct money, they deduct taxes and workers' compensation and social security and all those standard deductions that you get on a paycheck from those workers' paychecks. But because these workers are undocumented, they don't have the ability to draw money from the social security and Medicare systems. So that money will just go into the general economic pool. And And will stay there collecting interest and providing funds for American citizens that American citizens can benefit from. So, like, really, this is money that is just being paid into the system by undocumented immigrants that they cannot collect ever or benefit from ever.
1: Yeah. And it's just so strange that people will say things about immigration ruining the economy when, in fact, you know, you're just giving another example of
0: how it improves it. Right. And John McDonald had a really important point about how the government, like, it's so weird and ass backward, you know, these conflicting policies, because the government will do things like subsidize industries that rely on immigrant labor, but at the same time spend billions of dollars to keep people from coming to this country. So I actually think that the American economy could be vastly improved if we did not spend so much money trying to discourage or reduce or punish immigration when in fact, immigration has really great benefits.
1: Oh my God. It's terrible that baseless perceptions are dictating public policy, you know? So Darylise, this next listener has two questions.
0: Hi, my name is Lauren and I wanted to call in with a few questions today. Uh, My first question um, it's about stereotypes and and how can we combat stereotypes in conversations with friends and family about immigration and maybe what are some strategies to navigate those
1: conversations? My second question is really asking if you can speak to why words like illegal or alien are are destructive and what are some alternatives
0: to use? Thanks so much. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for those questions. So first off, I want to just say that I think it's really essential that we begin addressing these issues at home within our families and our networks and our smaller communities because that tends to be a place where we actually have the capacity to make a difference. So something that I've personally found to be really helpful is not to enter into these conversations from a place of high emotions. For example, not screaming at someone if they are in the middle of sort of like a rant or a tirade. I generally try to approach people in a place of calm and say something to the effect of, you know, like I've had people in my life kind of make comments. And generally speaking, I prefer to engage on a one on one basis so as not to be shaming or not to make someone feel wrong or attacked. But I'll generally approach them and say, you know, you said this thing and I just want to know why you felt this way. And I'd also like to share some information with you. And what I'll find generally in, in my own life life is that when I'm talking to someone who loves me and and who I love, and I can engage in these discussions from a human place, it's really a lot easier to find an inroad. And I think that the problem just generally with racism and xenophobia is that it dehumanizes people. And it can be really easy to do the reverse of that and dehumanize a person who is spouting racist or xenophobic remarks or regurgitating stereotypes, but on a personal level, if I can resist that impulse, I think there's a space that opens up for real healing. And so I would just encourage you when you're speaking to your family or your friends, encourage them to listen to this podcast or other podcasts or read articles and and ask them like, or you know, your book there, of,
1: Elise, or the yeah.
0: book. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I love that. Or yeah, um, get uh, demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. and But seriously, you know, you can just really share information and hope that it has an impact and also try to listen to the reason and the rationale behind people's beliefs and and ask them probing non-shaming kind of open questions because what i found is that often when i start drilling down with people and asking them questions i can inspire them to start interrogating their own biases and often what they'll find is that their opinions come from falsehoods that they actually like when they start to to talk about things like they don't actually know why they feel a certain way and i think it's really beautiful to support people in shifting away from beliefs that don't serve them and don't serve anybody else. And it's also really important, Lauren, to think about these things as ongoing dialogue. So you might not change a friend's mind or a family member's mind in a day, but you can absolutely open the door for incremental shifts over time. And my experience has been that people are a lot more malleable than we give them credit for, and that a lot of people that we love, that we know, actually want to be good people and want to love better. And and so I hope, I mean, I just think for people who are listening to this podcast now, I'm just going to say that I really personally, like, I hate when people just cancel other people from their life and just write them off. Again, unless that person is really toxic, or is really sort of hateful, or you find it to be against your own mental health needs, I would just encourage you to do what you can to stay in relationship with people and to love people, even if they have problematic worldviews and to just support them in shifting and let it be known. I mean, something that I've really worked on is to let the people that I love know that I can love them absolutely and take serious issue with certain behaviors or viewpoints. And I found that to be really, really rewarding. And Lauren, you asked a second question about language. And so just to kind of break that down and why that is so problematic is that when we think of aliens, right, just the word alien, you think of something non-human, and so, to refer to undocumented individuals as alien is to dehumanize them. And what we've seen over and over again is that once people are dehumanized, once you begin to dehumanize another person, it enables horrible atrocities and human rights violations. And so, similarly, you know, if you label a person illegal. You're not even saying that a behavior is illegal. You're saying that the person is illegal. You're effectively saying that a person is criminal and you're stripping them of the assumption of innocence. You're really destroying their backstory, not being curious at all as to why they chose to take the actions that they did, which are often of necessity, right? And you're destroying any genuine attempt at empathy and understanding. And I think in this episode, Obed Arango had some wonderful reflections on how this terminology can be alienating and fragmented. And yeah, I think just in general, so that you have some concrete pointers as to language to use, better terminology would be to refer to someone as an immigrant or undocumented, because those things are not dehumanizing and they're not laced with this preemptive judgment.
1: Oh, I love those answers, Darylise. Okay, we have another question.
0: Hi, Dara, Lise, and anyone else who is listening. My name is Noah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to call in. I'm calling today because I have a two-year-old daughter. She's just under two. And my wife and I have given a lot of thought recently to the importance of cross-cultural education and how we can make sure that our daughter is as culturally aware as can be growing up. Specifically, um, we want her hearing as much language as possible and wondered if you could speak a little bit about the importance and some best practices for bilingual education. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Oh, I love this question, Noah. And I love that you're thinking about these things as a parent when your daughter is only two, because it's never too early to start language immersion and education. And the earlier someone learns, the better. But I want to just bandy this question over to you, Anna Marie, because you were an educator and you are a parent and you studied language so much more extensively than I ever did. And your kids study languages. So how do you feel about you answering this question? Because I feel like you can speak both from Personal experience and research?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Well, my experience when I was a young adult has guided me to believe that as a parent, it's always the right time to expose your children to other languages and actually other languages and cultures. And actually, the younger that they are, the better. This will only help to broaden their understanding of themselves and how they will relate to the world as adults. I minored in Spanish at Syracuse University and was very fortunate to have an opportunity to study abroad my first semester of my junior year in Madrid, Spain. So I I did an immersion cultural and Spanish immersion program where all of my classes were in Spanish in the hopes that I would become super bilingual by the time i left. <laughs> and i have to be honest, it wasn't fun. During my initial weeks abroad, i remember feeling mentally drained. There was a cultural adjustment and the castilian spanish accent was way different than what i had learned or like the the teachers i had back at university or when i was in high school and middle school were all like south american speaking and it was much much different than the castilian. So that threw me for a loop and it was exhausting to listen so hard and remain focused without giving up. But I have to say, after a few weeks, it got easier and I remember telling my very first joke in Spanish to some Spanish friends, some English and Spanish friends, and everyone was laughing. And that was super exciting to me and it motivated me and it made me not want to give up. So yeah, I think that immersion could be difficult, but it's also... The best way to learn, and actually, my parents laughed at me because at first I was begging to come home, and by the end of the semester, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> <I> love that. <laughs> and now, fast forward, I have a fourteen-year-old son, and he decided to study German. I don't know why, but that's what he says, and it's a wonderful language. He has recently transitioned from a traditional German class in his middle school which was, I think he was taking it three days a week for 40 minutes to an immersion style program, which is one hour a week. And he learned so much more. Like, I can't believe how much he's picking up in that one hour. And the difference is, Darylise, that and our listeners, the one hour program is being taught by a German mom who has Luca speaking German from the moment he steps into her home, and he has to greet her in German. And after the lesson is over, her children will come down from doing their homework and have a conversation with Luca. So like many years ago, for me, he's saying that he's so mentally exhausted after that experience, because he has to be on the whole time. But I keep telling him how great that is because it means that he's really learning. It's a wonderful sign that he's really picking up the language and learning.
0: Yeah. And I bet for the listener, for Noah, for his child who's only two, just the earlier the better. Like it's probably easier for Luca at 14 than it was for you, you know, and like at 19 or 20 or whatever. And I think it would be so much easier for a two-year-old or a three or a four-year-old, right?
1: Absolutely. And actually, there are many studies out there that support that but the national institute of health actually states that there's a critical period between the ages of 5 to 15 where children are more receptive to bilingualism. So, yeah, you're right, the more that you expose someone earlier the better. But you can also be 75 years old and want to learn, I don't know, Japanese and you know there's no reason why you shouldn't start now. But yeah, language learning becomes more challenging with time for both, you know, maturational and environmental reasons, but yeah, like I said, there's no reason to not start learning a language if that's what you're interested in doing. I wish that language immersion programs were easier to access in public schools. Some have great language immersion, but most do not. But if it's important to you to expose your child, Noah, you know, make friends with someone who will invite your child and you and your family into their culture and language. So I find that the majority of people are proud to share their language and culture and happy when people want to get to know them in that way. That's actually how I found Luca's German teacher. She's a friend of mine. She's a German native, and her family all love to share their culture and their language, and she was happy to take Luca on. Oh, I love
0: that. That's so great. Thanks so much for answering, Anna Marie.
1: Absolutely. We have another call in question. Hi, Darylise and Anna Marie. This is Chrissy calling. I really love that you incorporated the Spanish language in this latest episode, and in another question-and-answer episode, you both mentioned having learned Spanish in the past. I wanted to ask if you could talk about those experiences. Thanks so much for the podcast.
0: Hi, Chrissy. Thanks so much for this question. I love that you're asking us to talk more about our own experiences. Me
1: too. I will have to say that if you don't use language, you'll lose it. (laughs) For the past decade, I've lived in an area where I unfortunately don't have many opportunities to speak Spanish anymore, so I'm pretty rusty. But it did come in handy in different places that I've lived, like New York City and in Miami. But in New York City, I sold vaccines, and I called on a lot of pediatricians in the Washington Heights area who were Dominican. So I would do my very best to detail the vaccines in Spanish. And I think that it worked well against the majority of my competition in that area, because I was trying my best to culturally fit in and engage in their language. And I think the doctors really appreciated that. And even if I said something wrong, they would always be like, oh, you know, (laughs) don't preoccupy, like, don't worry about it. And, you know, so also I mentioned I lived in Miami and I used it as much as I could there as well. So, you know, I grew up with my mom my mother was a native language speaker as well, but she spoke Sicilian. And when the majority of her Sicilian family passed away, she stopped speaking the language altogether. So it was just kind of interesting to me to see someone who spoke something fluently from birth, kind of lose the language a bit or not lose it completely, but she got very rusty. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I say if you don't use it, you lose it. You know, I say that, but I'm sure she can still run circles around my Spanish since, you know, Spanish is not my native language, like Sicilian is hers.
0: Yeah. And Marie, you know, I never asked you, so you've spoken a little bit about your experience with Spanish, but like, what was your entry into Spanish language and wanting to learn the language?
1: Well, let's see. So I started Spanish classes in middle school, which would make me what, like 12, 13-ish. Mm-hmm. And I continued studying it in high school. My junior and senior years, I was in honor Spanish, which meant that I entered university with credit. So I decided to minor in it and keep it going since I already had a jump on it. And I just loved learning about all the various Spanish cultures as much as I loved learning the language. So how about you, Darylis?
0: Well, I can't say that my formal education with the Spanish language was nearly as involved or comprehensive as yours. And I certainly did not do as well um, in school. (laughs) Like I wasn't getting good grades um, or in honor Spanish. So I did take Spanish in middle school and for a few years in high school because it was required. But Fun fact about me, I'm not sure that anyone would guess this, but I was a horrible student in high school. I almost never went I to seriously class.
1: seriously don't believe that at all. No, no.
0: I did. I, I missed, I, yeah, I missed like a Any portion. Digraphic. No, no. I missed a portion of 82 out of 182 school days my junior year. I just didn't go to class. I, yeah, I was I was horrible. But one of the good things about being a horrible student in high school who never went to class was that I was really way more interested in dating and like boys at that point than I was in learning. And so when I was 15, I met a, a young man, a boy from Brazil who was 18, and he and I were in an on-again, off-again relationship for about 10 years, I want to say. And in Brazil, they speak Portuguese. So it's certainly not at all the same language as Spanish, but there is a lot of overlap. There are a lot of linguistic parallels. And when he moved from Brazil to the United States, the ESL teachers in our high school only spoke Spanish and none of them spoke Portuguese. So he actually had to learn Spanish in order to learn English, which I always thought was so impressive that he could do that. But when I was 17, I moved out of my house and I moved in with him. I lived with him and his parents for maybe six or eight months or so. And his parents didn't speak any English. So they'd speak to me in Portuguese and I'd answer them in Spanish. And then they key to, like, it was, so cool. it was so cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, suddenly I was like living in this trilingual household. And then after that, you know, I traveled a lot. I, I think I've been to Mexico now like five or six times. And I, you know, speak Spanish all the time when I was there and I actually like funny story or not so funny. I was definitely not my buttoned up type A hyper motivated self back then. I was once in Mexico and I bought drugs with a group of guys from the Irish fire brigade. And I wasn't, I didn't actually do drugs. I've never, I never did drugs, but I spoke the language and I was like You're super reckless. You know? <laughs> <laughs> once, <I laughs> once. Like, so I knew how to broker like deals in my you teens and 20s.
1: I, this is like not like you at all. I just have to let our <laughs> listeners
0: know that. This is crazy. go ahead. I know. I know. So yeah, but that was definitely like in my, you know, in my crazy youth. But I've always loved Spanish and language and, and the ability to converse with people um, in ways that are meaningful. And just I think as a writer who's always loved language, like I just find language to be fascinating. And I can't say that I always get the grammar right or the syntax, but I love the way that people speak. And more recently, and as you'll have heard probably... If in the episode, I wrote the children's book Dos Idiomas one me, because I've just always really felt like it's so essential for people to be able to have equal and simultaneous representation, whether that's racial or linguistic. And I feel like there's not enough of that. But I will say that Absolutely. because
1: it's a my book Darrylis, by the way, I just love uh, how you show the integration of the language and how it, it like with me, it was hard to it was hard for this character in the book to have both. And it was kind of confusing. And then once she realized how special it was to be able to speak both, she was able to share that with her family and her English speaking friends, right? Like the Spanish side and the English side. So it was beautifully done.
0: Yeah, well, I love that. And I will say, though, that I wrote the book, but I really wasn't qualified to write it on my own, right? So because my grasp of the Spanish language is far from perfect, and I'm way better at speaking and understanding than I am at writing. But I did my best. And then I relied really, really heavily on my baby sister, Tyla, who's a Spanish major at college. And she, I mean, her Spanish is just incredible. She can converse fluently, although she has good pretty heavy English accent. And I also relied on Spanish speaking editors and beta readers. And one of the reasons I didn't read the book on air, the way I read I'm Mixed is because my Spanish just isn't as good as my English. And I really wanted listeners to hear the beauty of the language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrea Carolla did such a beautiful job reading that. And she has an incredible voice.
0: I know. I admire people who can just shift so effortlessly from one language to another or to multiple languages. And I'm not there and I probably never will be. But so many people that I interviewed for this episode and Anna Marie, when in your interview with Veronica too, just so many people have that capacity to be multilingual. And I so admire that. And thank you, Chrissy, for the question.
1: Yeah, this is inspiring me to want to go back and practice my Spanish. (laughs) We have (laughs) another question, Darylis. Hi, Darylis. I really appreciate the
0: discussion that you're having about full political participation in democracy. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about partisan politics and maybe explain more about how organizations try to get people to participate in the American political system but they do that without taking a stand or influencing people. It seems like it'd be hard to educate in an unbiased way. And can you explain why nonpartisan organizations decide to be nonpartisan? Thank you so much and look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks for asking that. I'm assuming that this question came up because of the interviews with Juan Rosa and Juliana Cabrales from Naleo Educational Fund, which is a nonpartisan organization. And this podcast actually, I should say, is a nonpartisan podcast. And so although you'll hear us reporting about some of the abuses by the Trump administration, we also will talk about in our next episode abuses by the Kennedy family. And in the last Q&A, we gave a shout out to George W. Bush, for his speech in the aftermath of 9-11. So we really think that it's important for us. And we've just personally and professionally made that decision that whatever our political leanings or opinions, we want to try to present information in a holistic and comprehensive way. So that doesn't mean that we don't call out racism and xenophobia and those types of things. But these things can happen within either political party. So we might point to individuals on the basis of their actions and call them out, but we don't really have a clear political affiliation. So I, I just wanted to say that because I really hope that people listening will know that we want to encourage listenership from all demographics. But you know, bringing it back to Naleo specifically, or in a later episode, I interview Gwen Borowski of the National Liberty Museum, which is also a nonpartisan organization. It all comes back to the ideas of freedom and liberty. And if we or any organization want to educate people as members of a participatory democracy and as agents of free will, then there's really an obligation and a duty to present information that allows people to freely choose and engage with that information and to make empowered decisions. So for Nileo specifically, I think being a nonpartisan organization, which just basically means that they impart information in a way that is not skewed towards the Democratic or skewed towards the Republican. It's so important because they want people to participate in the political process. And so they have to offer them information about that process and about how to get involved. And I think it would be a violation of that mission if they tried to influence people one way or another. And so personally, I just really loved the voter ads that we had at the time of this last presidential election that were coming out that were saying, like, whoever you vote for, just vote, right? Like, I just love those ads.
1: Me too. I love those ads. And I think that the American populace really did a great job of getting involved and participating in this election, despite all of the barriers people were facing and have been facing with the pandemic.
0: Yeah. And I, for one, can say that a large part of that voter engagement was due to the work of organizations like Naleo and just organizations in general, like Get Out the Vote and just so many different groups and that were reaching out to get people to participate and to resist the very real human tendency towards apathy.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, Darylise, before we say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. During each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week, the name we picked is Nellie from Cape Cod. Yay! (laughs) So Nellie asked an email question in this episode and we'll be contacting her to arrange to send out a free t-shirt as a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. And if you want to be eligible to win a shirt, Call in or email us with a question and or subscribe to our newsletter.
0: Yeah, call, email, subscribe. We love your participation. So however you get involved, please get involved and join the conversation. And signing up to our newsletter is especially great because then you can keep up to date on episodes and events. So just go to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com and sign up there.
1: Yay, congratulations once again, Nellie. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you to everyone who's listening for joining us for this Q&A episode.
1: Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons.
0: Yes, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Lacalle by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios.
1: If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by our very own Darylise Lyons.
0: Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Developmental Disabilities, Exploring the Importance of Agency and Advocacy. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.